Hi, my name is Keith Bowes, and I'm the Managing Director of Lotus Resources. Lotus Resources owns the Kalakira Uranium Mine, which is located in Malawi in Central Africa. It is a past-producing mine, operated between 2009 and 2014. Uh, we've also announced recently that we've acquired a new project, which is located in Botswana, called the Letlakani Uranium Project. That deal is ongoing and we expect to be able to close that deal out at the end of October, beginning of November this year. Keith, thank you very much for the introduction. Um, lots to talk about, lots to unpack in what's happening uh, within Lotus at the moment. Um, but I see you're in a hotel room. You're in London. It's uh, W&A week. Um, you're in there with a whole bunch of uranium guys. Uh, what's the mood like? The mood is absolutely amazing, I can tell you that. I we were at WNA last year, and I thought it was very, very positive. This year, I think it's gone up, uh, gone up another level. Uh, the number of attendees has increased by about thirty percent. There's probably around seven hundred attendees this year mm -hmm. across a whole lot of different uh, groups as well. We've got a number of producers here, a number of developers, explorers, the utilities, of course, and also some of the service providers as well. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to make it to many of the actual presentations of the conference itself. I've been back to back in meetings with various people. But certainly the vibe is very, very positive at the moment. I mean, I think it's almost a perfect timing for this conference. We've seen the uranium price jump up to $61. It's been stable mm -hmm. for the last five or six days or so. I think there's a lot of positive news coming out with regard to the market in terms of the growth of, uh, of the uranium demand going forward with all the new constructions happening in China. You've got the U.S. talking about extending the life of their reactors. Europe is obviously very, very positive. Lots of stuff happening in Europe around the nuclear space as well. The SMRs are starting to become a big part of the conversation as well, these small modular reactors. Canada's leading that way as well as China, but there's a lot of stuff happening in Europe around SMRs as well. WNA actually released yesterday their forecast on future demand and supply in the market, and it looks like their expectation on their medium path sits at about a 3.6% increase in the uranium demand moving forward compared to the last time when they did a report of only 2.5%, I think it was. So there's certainly an increase in terms of the demand. So a very, very positive vibe. Everyone's walking around with big smiles on, the, on their faces at the moment. So it's very And the attendees, is it, I mean, the meetings that you're having, are they with uh, potential equity investors or is it a mix of equity investors and uh, offtake um, utilities contractors? It's, it's been a mix of them. So we've managed to get a pretty even split between uh, Catching up with some of our existing shareholders and giving them an update, also having an opportunity to present the project to some new potential shareholders as well, so various UK-based funds, some international funds that have also come across for the conference as well. So we had, a, had an opportunity to have a conversation with them, met with a number of utilities as well, primarily European utilities. There is a few US utilities that we've also caught up with, but most of our meetings have been with the European utilities. And we've also had a couple of conversations with some of the conversion facilities and some of the logistics companies that we'll potentially be working with in the future as well, just to give them an update and start to get an understanding of what we need to do from a conversion supply side and how we're going to work through our logistics and those types of things as well. So a nice uh, diverse group that I've been talking to. Um, it's been really, really good. Where are you in your offtake contracting discussions? I mean, um, just just uh, remind me what the plan is. I mean, obviously, you don't uh, uh, sign it all away now. What, what's your strategy on offtake? And um, what, what would be an ideal situation for you to uh, enter into that contract phase? Sure. So we've been, I mean, for, 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 for the people on the call, just to uh, just explain a little bit about how the uranium 
uh, contracting um, system works, there's generally two types of contracting you do. One's called an on-market contract, another's called an off-market contract. It's the on-market contract that we've been focusing on lately. And this is really around companies uh, getting themselves onto the preferred supplier list for the various utilities. And Lotus has done that. We're on the preferred supplier list for many of the North American and European utilities. And when those utilities come out looking for uh, supply, they put out a request for proposal. And that request for proposal goes out to their preferred suppliers. And then you effectively bid on that, uh, on, on that proposal. Uh, we've been participating for about 12 to 15 months now in these requests for proposals from the various entities. Um, the one Sorry, thing- so just, just um, can you unpack that a bit? So the, 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 an RFP um, will come out uh, and they'll say, we want to, we will offer, the, do they give you a price and they say how much they're looking for? They tell you how much they're looking for and they tell you how what the volumes are or the time frame associated with it. So say 200,000 pounds in 2025, 2026 and through to 2031 or something like that. And they might then say they also want to have extensions to that contract. So at their discretion, they could ask for an additional two years worth of uh, supply. They also sometimes ask for flexibility within that contract so they can flex the volumes by say 20% on an annual basis. They also specify perhaps which conversion facility they want to have the material delivered to. And they talk a little bit about payment terms. But then what they normally do then is they either either leave it open in terms of the pricing strategy that you can put forward or they recommend their preferred pricing strategy. They don't give you the price that they're seeking, but just a pricing strategy. And I think as we've discussed before, there's broadly two types of pricing strategies at the moment. One is called a base escalated price. So you end up picking a price and it's normally generally quite close to the spot price, let's say, but that price gets escalated each year of the contract. And the escalation is either a CPI or some other index that you reference to the system. So you've got a relatively good certainty around the pricing that you're going to receive for your product over that period of time. The other way that you do it is a market-related pricing strategy. So instead of picking a base escalated price, what you'll say is that the price that I will receive for the product will be, for example, the average of the spot price and the term price in the month that I deliver the product. But in order to be able to protect yourself a little bit, you put ceilings and floors onto those contracts as well. So maybe a floor is somewhere between $55 and $60 per pound, and maybe a ceiling is between $75 and $85 per pound or something like that. But also what's happening now as well is that those ceilings and floors are also getting escalated now as well. So there's an escalation clause associated with those with those floors and ceilings. So depending on, you know, I suppose there's a little bit of a, um, a dilemma in terms of which is the best way for us to go. We understand that if we were to go a debt financing route or to have some debt financing as part of our capital raise strategy, the banks and those like the idea of the um, base escalated price because of the more certainty amounts about the revenue that will come into the company from it. Yeah. But there's a lot of our shareholders who are in Lotus because they want leverage to the uranium price. Yes. So what price runs up and goes to the $100 million or something like that, they want exposure to that and therefore the market-related uh, contract is much more of interest to them. So the way that we contract and the way that we're going to be raising the financing becomes an important question as well. But I think coming back to your other question about our overall strategy, so I think there's a discussion around those two different types of pricing mechanisms. I think we'll have a mixture of those pricing mechanisms. 
I think what we want to try and achieve in our strategy is to have a number of layered contracts. So maybe contract is 100,000, 200,000 or 300,000 pounds delivery to various groups each year. And maybe each of them have a different type of pricing mechanism associated with them. To get a spread of risk and protection. Exactly. So we've got a bit of stuff. But also to, you know, I wouldn't say to satisfy, but also one of the other things that we're also thinking about as well is that it's important for us to make sure that when we go out and contract, we cover our cash costs. So it's a really simple sum. Say we're producing uranium at $30 per pound and we've got term contracts at $60 per pound. We would want to put half of our material, so 50% of our material, into term contracts such that our cash costs are covered. We always know that we're going to be able to cover our bottom line through that. And then there might be an opportunity to then put the remaining 50% into either the spot market or into shorter term contracts where we can get further exposure to any uh, peaks within the price. So that's also coming into the conversation with regard to how we want a contract moving forward. Um, you mentioned the spot price at $61 a pound. What are the contracts coming through at the moment, the contract prices that you can kind of pick up through the, the back channels? Well, well, let me just go. I'll go back one step and then I'll come back and I'll answer that question. So as I said, we've been participating in this uh, in these requests for proposals for about 15 months or so. And we've been quite strict about the pricing that we want to receive. We want to make sure that when we start the mine up, we're going to be profitable. We're going to get good return on investments and be able to share that share those profits with our shareholders. So we set ourselves a, um, a lower limits of what the price we want it to be. And we've been consistently putting those into those requests for proposals. So when we started 15 months or so ago, the feedback we were getting from the various utilities was, we like the project, we like what you guys are doing. However, some of your competitors out there are prepared to provide uranium at a lower price than what you guys are. And we said, that's fine. We've got no issue with that. We're confident of where the uranium price is going. And sorry, are you are you public on that figure? I mean, is it $65? Uh, but it's, it's okay. It's- Let me say that the, 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 what we're trying to achieve from our, from our uh, marketing strategy or from our offtake agreements is to achieve a minimum of $65 per pound average over the life of mine. Okay. That's that's what we would like to achieve. But what we've seen in the last few requests for proposals that we have uh, participated in, it would appear now that the market has come up to the level that we're pricing at now. So the comments we're now getting back from the utilities are not, oh, there's competitors out there that can provide uranium at a lower price. Some of the comments back are, you know, we, we need uranium in 2024. Unfortunately, we can't provide uranium in 2024. That's too soon for us. So we haven't got the contract because of that. Some of the other ones are saying, uh, that's great. We like where you're going. When you guys have made your final investment decision, then we're happy to sign contracts with you and that kind of stuff. So I feel the pricing that we're putting into our request for proposals are now acceptable levels. They're acceptable to the utilities. And we think they're good prices for us to be able to make a start on the mine as well. Okay, thank you. Uh, which leads us on to the next uh, kind of two big topics, really. One is the FID and the other is the merger. Um, uh, let's cover the FID process where you are, both in terms of the pricing, but also the other elements that uh, you've... Just if you could recap the other things that you're working on to reach FID in addition to waiting for that for that price point to kind of bite. Correct. So the, the two key things that we're looking for in order to make the FID decision is one of them is uranium price. And as I said, I think we're getting very, very close to that. I think we'll be very, very comfortable making FID in the current pricing environment. The second point is obviously the mine development agreement. And we've spoken a lot about this. So there's been a lot of uh, information coming out from the company over the last year and a half or so about these uh, MDA discussions. So the mine development agreement is a very, very common thing that you do in Africa. 
is effectively an agreement that you have with the government that sets the fiscal regime in which the project will operate. So it looks at things like tax rates and whether the super profit taxes and what you do with non-residence taxes, VAT and all those types of things. So we've been busy negotiating with the government on that um, over the last 18 months or so. Um, Paladin, when they operated Calacara, had a mine development agreement. Unfortunately, that mine development agreement expired. There's normally a stability period defined within that uh, MDA, and that's 10 years normally. So that's expired. So as part of our process of extending our mining license, we agreed that we would go back and renegotiate an MDA, and that's what we've been doing. So we have a non-binding term sheet in place that sets out the main fiscal elements that we're looking for concessions on and also talks about some of the other non-fiscal elements that you'd like to see in an agreement. So that's things around expropriation and those types of things which are fairly standard in these agreements. Isn't there a power um, power agreement as part of kind of um, a, a power supply uh, component to the, um, to the MDA as well? Uh, that's a separate part of the discussion. Within the MDA agreement itself, one of the requests that we're making with the government is to give as much support as they can to ESCOM, which is the Malawian electricity uh, utility, not the South African um, electricity utility, but for the government of Malawi to provide as much support to ESCOM such that we can then negotiate this power implementation agreement and a power supply agreement with them as well. So there's just an intention around that rather than the actual agreement itself. But I'll talk a little bit about what we're doing with ESCOM. We've made some good progress with ESCOM over the last few months as well. But the MBA, so we've got this non-binding term sheet in place. We've engaged the lawyers. Um, we've had a number of meetings of myself and one of our other directors, as well as our CFO, have been in country probably three or four times already this year to talk to the governments about the MDA. Uh, we think we've made some good progress in the last couple of weeks or so. I think there's a, a firm understanding from the government in terms of what's required from their side in order to be able to incentivize the mining industry. Because one of the things that we're talking about, and um, we're actually talking to some of the other uh, companies that are looking at developing mines in Malawi as well, there's a lot of mining potential in Malawi. There's five or so companies that have got really good projects that can be developed in Malawi in the next five to six years or something like that. And if the government can get to a point where they can set up an MDA structure that uh, incentivizes these companies to develop these projects and allows these companies to go out and attract the amounts of capital that they need to be able to develop these countries, Malawi in the next five to six years could be a very, very different com uh, uh, country with all these projects up and running. And that's really the messaging we're going with. So we're making some good progress. Uh, confident that within the next couple of months, I think we will have something that we can report back to the market on. Um, and that's really the main thing we're waiting for uh, before making final investment decision. So the two things I said, price, uranium price, which we're pretty close to it, I think. MDA, we're making some good progress at. At a secondary layer in terms of we want to show or demonstrate some progress on it is really the connection to the uh, national grid, which is the ESCOM negotiations. And we've had some good progress with them over the last few months as well. We formed two working groups with them, a technical working group and a commercial working group. The technical working group has effectively completed their, um, their work. We've defined what the optimal connection is, the optimal way in which we will connect to the national grid. And we've now uh, transferred across the commercial negotiations in terms of how this uh, will be funded. Uh, the expectation is that Lotus will actually fund the installation 
of the new transmission line and the upgrades to the substation, but at the same time, we will negotiate a reduced tariff from ESCOM such that we can recover our costs associated with it. So we're in those sort of discussions at the moment. Thank you. Just going back to the MDA, the Mine Development Agreement, is there a uh, feeling that because you've got four or five different mines in Malawi kind of all pushing for the same thing, is there a feeling that the government is, is reluctant to issue one until it's kind of comfortable with a standard framework that can be applied to all five? Uh, I think they recognize that that's not possible because of the timing of the different projects. We're obviously the leader in terms of the mine that's most likely to get up and operate first. Yeah. Um, but I do think that what we negotiate with the government could potentially become a bit of a blueprint for the other MDAs. Yeah. And I think maybe that's what it's in the back of their mind as well. Again, I know when I've uh, spoken to the minister and what we've tried, what we're asking for within the MDA, she certainly acknowledges that she's getting very similar commentary back from the other companies as well. So it's not like one company is asking for one thing and another company is asking for something completely different. There is some unity in terms of what each of the companies are asking for. So from that perspective, I think that they do acknowledge there could be a standard template to some extent, uh, but there will always be some differences um, between the different uh, companies. For example, on our project, um, our, our upfront capital is relatively low compared to a greenfield project that's obviously got a huge capital expenditure up front. And that has some influence in terms of the way tax losses are used and those types of things might be one of the comments. Um, yeah, so there's certainly acknowledgement that there is a need for some similarity, but each project will be slightly different then. I, I, I can almost feel the kind of the the burden of responsibility in the ministry in, in in making sure that they're getting it right and actually kind of having the confidence to make that decision. But, um, well, I hope you get it in this this quarter or, or before the end of the year. That would certainly give you a uh, a boost going into 2024, wouldn't it? Correct, yeah. I mean, I think the ideal timeline for us is uh, get the MDA signed before the end of the year, make FID by the end of the year, uh, be able to move early next year into the refurbishment of the plot. And just on that refurbishment, kind of two questions which kind of um, uh, bobble around in the back of my head. One is the about the, st the stability of the plant because there have been some ground issues um, and the other is CapEx. But um, let's let's um, ground stability first, please. Kind of um, Because there were some issues in the past, weren't they, with, um, Correct. with movement? So, the, so, so what's happening is that where the plant uh, was located, it was on the side of a hill. And there's, um, it's under the whole or the whole uh, geology of that area. It's a series of um, what they call arcos units, which is effectively a sandstone interspersed with mudstone layers within the system. And these mudstone layers, if you get any water into the mudstone layers, they become quite slippery. So what you've ended up in is a situation where you've got your plants sitting on top of, on top of multiple blocks of these sandstone units with this mudstone layer sitting underneath it. And when uh, the mine was constructed, they cleared some of the ground on the top of the hill to be able to put the stockpiles and the waste rock dumps up there. And what's happened, you've had ingress of water into the system that has reached these mudstone layers and has caused some, I suppose you've ended up in a position where the friction is a lot less and these bodies can move across each other. And then you've also applied weight to the system by putting these waste rock dumps on top of the hill. So now you've got a driving force associated with it as well. 
Now, this was picked up very, very early uh, when they were operating the mine. So it's been going on since 2009, 2010. Paladin did do some work around stabilizing the ground, predominantly by removing a lot of the waste rock dumps that sit on top of the hill, and that has actually reduced the movement significantly. There is still some movement that's occurring um, when we're monitoring that very, very closely. But a big piece of the work that we did as part of the feasibility study was actually to bring in a number of geotechnical experts uh, to look at the whole system, to review all of the historical data and be able to present a number of solutions to us. And the solution that we've picked up on is it got two components to it. One is putting what they call a pile fence in. So fortunately, this, uh, this plane, this mudstone zone that is responsible for the movement of these Arcos units is not that deep. So what we're looking at doing is actually drilling down into the ground and putting in piles and then using those piles they will go through the mudstone zone and go into the bedrock and using the piles will actually be able to stabilize and lock the Arcos units in place. So that's one part of it. The second part of it is we will complete Paladin's work with regards to removing the waste rock dumps and the stockpiles that are sitting on the uh, on, on top of the hill uh, to reduce that driving force from the system as well. One of the things that we're currently doing as part of our care and maintenance program is we're making sure that we're reducing the amount of water that enters into the groundwater system. So we've done a lot of work around reforming a lot of the drains, uh, keeping the drains nice and clean, moving all the water away from the plant as much as possible and making sure we divert it away. That's an ongoing exercise that we're continuously working on. So we have seen some movement, as I said, around the plant terrace. We are doing a little bit of stabilization work where required, but we're mainly making sure we're managing the water as effectively as possible with the intention that as soon as we kick off the uh, refurbishment of the plant, one of the first things we're going to do is put in this pile fence, and then before we start the mining, we will remove those stockpiles from on top of the hill. And will you have any um, kind of um, dewatering uh, boreholes? Um, kind of, or is, is there no need to have that? No, because one of the issues is that the mudstone, once it gets wet, it's actually quite difficult to get the water out of the mudstone. So putting in a borehole doesn't really help. We can't dewater yeah. the system. It's more a case of these piles, so a combination of concrete and steel coming through that zone and locking that plate into the bedrock is really the way to do it, to stabilize it. So there'll be two or three fences running along there. Probably, you know, every two meters or so, three meters, there'll be a, there'll be a pile going down into the system. The total cost for, those, for that pile fence is about $5 million. And there's another $5 million required to uh, remove the waste rock and the stockpiles on, from, on top of the, um, from on top of the hill. All of those costs were included in the feasibility study. So that $88 million that we talk about already includes those costs. And um, have you seen cost inflation? I mean, you obviously have to come keep monitoring this. Um, does the 88 figure hold true? I mean, is it sensible to round it up to 100? Uh, you know, it's just a, a thumb suck. Well, um, you know, when we did report on that $88 million to the market, we were reporting in that really high inflationary environment where we know a lot of the freight costs were significantly yep. higher. So I think there's going to be some you know, ups and downs in terms of the CapEx. I'm still relatively comfortable that we're in the right area, whether it's 88 or 90 or 92, it might creep up a little bit like that, or maybe it end up 84 or 86, I'm not sure. But it's certainly that ballpark figure. One of the things we will do 
after we've made final investment decision is we will kick off a front-end engineering and design program. The majority of that work will be spent around, you know, really making sure we've got the design around some of our new equipment and make sure we've got the timelines associated with refurbishment. But we will refresh that CapEx number and we will also come up with a new operating cost number as well, which we'll be able to report to the market. And that updated uh, CapEx number will then become the control budget that we'll use for the refurbishment. So there will be some news on the CapEx and OPEX coming out after we make FID as well. Uh, Keith, thank you very much. Um, we've been talking for a while now and we haven't actually mentioned almost like the headline news in your company, which is you've done a merger um, and you've picked up uh, Let Lakani in, in, in Botswana. Um, you announced the... Uh, the merger in July, and a lot of the timelines pointed to September and October. Could you give an update on where you've, where you've got to in that process, please? Yeah, so we announced on the 13th of July, um, the merger itself is through what they call a scheme of arrangement, so it's an equity deal, where uh, the ACAP shareholders who own the Letlakani project will receive Lotus shares um, for the ratio, exchange ratios for every 354 shares that an ACAP shareholder has an ACAP, they will receive one Lotus share. So the way that system works is we need to get independent experts reports and independent technical experts to be able to provide some input as to whether the deal itself or the scheme of arrangements is either fair or reasonable or both fair and reasonable. So we've gone through that process. Those uh, independent experts have provided their draft reports. We have prepared the scheme booklet, which is the big document that will go out to all of the shareholders that contains all the information around the deal. That is currently sitting with ASIC, so the regulators in Australia, for them to do a review of it. Uh, once we've got the feedback from them, we'll be able to finalise that booklet with the idea that we then go to the... We have our first court hearing date next week. Uh, we present that uh, all the information to the courts uh, for them to give it a tick in the box, um, and then we can then start to distribute out the scheme booklets, go for the shareholder, the AGM for the shareholder meeting, and then look at the side of five in a second court hearing as well. So we've, we've made some good progress. Uh, everything's going according to plan. Uh, we'll be able to announce some more information in the next coming weeks after the uh, scheme booklet is being delivered. But our expectation is that the implementation date for the uh, uh, for the deal would be end of October, beginning of November. So sort of the last week of October or first week of November, sort of where we think we're going to be closing this deal out. Okay. The I mean, just just to recap the kind of the rationale for the deal, it's kind of to expand your footprint in Africa to grow the resource base and um, to bulk up really the company. Correct. Yeah. So one of the comments that we had when we um, announced the feasibility study to the market last year was everyone liked the project itself. They thought the operating costs were sitting in the right um, area comment we did get was well could you possibly grow this uh, life of mine you know what are the opportunities to be able to go from 10 years to say 12 years or 15 years or something like that we took that on board we did some exploration work or went back and had a look at some exploration results to see what we could potentially do about extending the life of mine at Kalakira. I think there is potential there we have a um, a small resource sitting on one of our exploration tenements to the south of the asset it's got about five million pounds on there, but I think we can grow that further. There's another new mineralized zone we've picked up in Chalumba as well that could potentially be converted into a into a resources one at some time. But while we were doing that exploration work, we were mandated by the board to have a look at some M and A opportunities as well as a way of also trying to grow our um, our life of mine, let's say, or the ability for the company to be able to provide uranium to the market for multiple decades was sort of the target for us. We set ourselves up with some criteria about what we wanted to do with that. 
we made the decision we wanted to stay Southern African. We thought that was important for us to be able to get the synergies between the various projects. And also if we could find something that was similar to Calakira, such that all the work that we've done around optimizing the Calakira asset, optimizing the Calakira processing uh, plants and all that kind of stuff, we would then be able to use that knowledge and that experience to be able to develop the new operation as well. So we had a look around, we had a look in Namibia, we had a look around in Zambia, Botswana, Tanzania and those sorts of areas. And we, and we saw Letlakani. It's a great project, a really big resource. Under the numbers that we're quoting, using a 200 ppm cutoff grade, there's 190 million pounds there. So if you compare that to what we've got at Calakira, where we've got quite a pounds, you know, it's a significant increase in terms of our resource footprint. So what we think by putting the two companies together, we're obviously still very much focused on getting Calakira up and running as soon as possible. But let Lakani really is the long-term supply strategy for Lotus to be able to, de to deliver our product into the market. We think, based on what we've seen so far, that if we've got Calakira coming in and let Lakani starting a few years after Calakira is in operation, we'll be able to deliver uranium to the market for 20 to 25 years, is sort of our expectation, and anywhere from about two and a half million pounds per annum to perhaps as high as five or six million pounds per annum will, um, as will be possible during that period as well. So a really big step for us in terms of growing our profile and growing our, growing our resource and growing our production profile. Goodness, um, lots going on. Um, <clears throat> when you look ahead to the... Uh, next six months so kind of through the rest of this year and into the um the start of next year is it fair to say that kind of most of the news and most of the money is going to be going into um Kalakira and re really the the, the 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 big news will be uh related to the uh the mda the power agreement and then the announcement of the fid correct i think those are the three main things that we'll be focusing on over the next period we do recognize that once the deal closes out in let lakani there's certainly some things we would like to do there uh, there's certainly some work we would like to do around the resource. There's, uh, I think, a need for us to do some infill drilling as well. At the moment, Litlakani, of that £190 million, only 22% is sitting in measured and indicated status. We need to do some infill drilling, try and get that measured and indicated status quantity up so we can then start to wrap, wrap some technical studies around that as well. So I think there'll be quite a bit of drilling that we'll be looking at next year at Litlakani. But certainly in the next six months, as MDA power purchase agreement, offtake agreements, making FID, um, and then looking to start the refurbishment of the plant, such that Calacara can hopefully start delivering and producing product in uh, mid-2025. And kind of the step in between, of course, is um, like all CEOs, you'd expect the share price to go up, and you know that's what you want. Um, and then there's a kind of a financing strategy, how you do the debt equity mix, kind of capital raises uh, and, and all of that. But that's kind of almost like a topic for, for next year, really. Yeah, I think that we certainly would want to have in our mind our preferred strategy sorted out in the next few months i think such that we can pull the trigger on the methodology that we want to use part of the conversations i've been having with a number of the funds here in london who i've met with we have touched on this topic about how we would like to try and do that there's certainly a lot of appetite from some funds to participate in a significant equity raise to provide the capital for that refurbishment and that's certainly one of the things that we will be pursuing as well. Well, I'll keep my eyes peeled for that news and all the rest of the news. Um, Keith, thank you very much for the update. It's been fascinating. Excellent. Thank you very much. It was great to see you again.